Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, John. How are you? I'm great. It's good to see you again so soon. It's it really been, it's happening fast. It is happening fast. Uh, just to remind everybody, we're doing 24 episodes this year, so we're seeing each other once every two weeks now, uh, whereas last year it was like once a month. So it's like, hey, it's Jim again. Welcome back. You know, and I'm interested about how you've sort of structured this season because it's uh, it's different than other seasons where it's interview, 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 interview. There, You've got a different uh, twist on it this year. We do, and we will dive into that in this episode. This is episode 402, which means it's an even episode, and I think it's safe to say that all even episodes will, will be like this. As you said, we're doing big interviews every other episode, but I thought it'd be fun to occasionally look back at a thought or an idea that was brought up by a past guest and chat about that a bit, and I'm currently calling that segment a few minutes with dot, 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 but I'm I'm wide open to, to other names as well. Oh, no, I like that. A few minutes with dot, dot, dot. Yes, exactly. And I should say, before we dive into this one, nice uh, responses to episode one of season four. People love our friend uh, George Campbell. They got a big kick out of what he had to say. Getting nice responses from people, which is always nice to hear. If you like what you're hearing, go leave a review or just even hit the stars on the thing. I think it's, you don't even need to write anything. I think if you just click, well, maybe five stars. We don't want them. What, you don't want to have five stars? You don't want to ask? No, well, we don't want to tell you what to do, but five stars. Yes. I'm not telling you what to do, five stars, but that would be the way to do it. And, you know, not surprising that people enjoyed that interview with George Campbell. I enjoyed that interview with yes. George Campbell. It's, he's he's uh, he's terrific and he's, uh, good call putting him uh, in the mix and first in this yeah. new season. Yes, He's fantastic. Uh, I'm just reminded of a five-star story of my own when I filled out a survey at uh, the dealership for my car and uh, got a call from the manager saying, I don't think you understand how to fill this out. You've given us uh, zero stars. And I said, uh, yeah, because there was just no way to do less than that. Oh. <laughs> I won't name the dealership, but we, I never went back. I understand that. Uh, wow. Okay. I, uh, I hope I, I hope I'm never given zero stars, uh, but you do what you want to do folks. I, I don't want to coerce you into five stars, but that's what I want. Anyway, George was fantastic. So much fun to talk to him as always. What we're going to do now is just look back on some that I talked to when we first started this podcast, before we kind of got our schedules aligned, there were first couple of interviews for the podcast, you weren't around for the interviews, but you were there for the shows. Uh, and this was with Rob Zabrecki. Oh. I can't say enough good things about Rob Zabrecki. I saw him at a genie convention in Florida. I believe it was his first time performing on the East Coast. Uh, he has a fascinating story about being in the punk rock group uh, Possum Dixon and yeah. that group going away and his uh, wandering into a magic store because it was hot out and anyway uh he is a really really smart really really good really really funny performer and magician and there was something he said in the interview that i thought would have uh resonance with you ah with me with exactly with you and and so let's just jump in this is three years ago with rob zabrecki 
10 years I ran the Houdini seance at the Magic Castle. And the one line before going into the dark seance, which is, of course, very theatrical and spooky and fun and appeals a certain aesthetic that, that people you know, love, is, is the line I, when I say, if you believe, you will receive. And, and it's the last thing I like to just kind of give everyone that, that, that million mile stare and then the lights come down. And <laughs> now, hey, I get, I get, you know what? The truth is when, when all the lights are out in my house and something, I hear a sound in the other room, I kind of, maybe for a second, I do believe in yeah. something or, or a predator. I don't know. How often do you run into someone when doing the Houdini seance who, when it's over, uh, is convinced it was real? Okay, that's a good question. Um, the, the answer is too often, because the fact that it happens at all is astonishing to me. Uh, primarily because if you know the Houdini seance experience at the Magic Castle, it is Disneyland in the 1960s. So, you know, it's a it's a real sh it's a real show, and I don't think that's fooling anyone. But what does fool people is this idea in their head that, oh, we're going to a seance tonight at the Magic Castle. So suddenly, again, if you believe, you will receive. There's the, the, you know, this idea of getting dressed up and going to a seance. And they, they enter this beautiful Victorian seance chamber. And this dark figure, me, comes out and is, quite frankly, strange. And he, I do a bunch of close-up magic that appears real. And it, so, so it, it, it starts off very strange and very spooky. And I do, a, you know, um, a handful of spiritualistic uh, close-up effects. So this all seems like there might be, if, you know, there might be something here for this. So people that want to believe that there's going to be something here. However, when the lights come down and the dark sands happens, that we know is a put on. So at the end of this, people refer to the beginning and go, well, Boy, how could he have known that? And how how did how could that have happened? And can I talk to you for a second? Can you can you come here? Would you come to my house next week in Beverly Hills and can I pay you five hundred dollars to contact Uncle Jerry? And that is the moment where I, you know I very quickly lift the veil and say, No, I can't. Uh, this is this I, I'm doing this for entertainment. This is a this is a very theatrical. Uh, uh, experience for myself, and, and I'm glad you had that too. But if you're looking for someone to, you know, go to bat to to try to find the other side, I'm not. I'm not the the guy to do that. Yeah, he's not the guy to do that, and I don't. I don't think you are either. And you've been in that similar situation with your Halloween show mm -hmm. quite a bit, haven't you? Yeah, and and I, I too, when pushed. But I have to be really pushed because my philosophy is this. Um, the audience has paid a certain amount of money for an experience that they want. I'm not going to pull the rug out from under them unless they really believe that I have some, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to cop to the fact that it was a show until right. we get to that point where they say, can you tell me, and this has happened, this happened this past year, can you tell me if my father is is proud of me, is happy with me? And, uh, you know, I, I'm 
as Rob Zabrecki said, I'm dumbfounded by those kinds of comments because it is obviously a show. It, 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 now, I blur the lines. I try to make it entertaining. I try to make it spooky. I want them to have the experience that they came for. They want to talk about ghosts. They're bringing their uh, ghost devices uh, to uh, monitor the room to make sure that if there is a ghost, they've been able to connect with it. So I don't I don't want to say, hey, you know, I made all this crap up. I, I, everything that I've said tonight, uh, essentially, uh, I made up out of whole cloth, which is largely true. Um, but I don't I, I don't that's not what they want to hear. And I don't want to tell them that until they say, can you tell me if my father is proud of me and happy with me? And what do you and, do in a case like that? Well, you know what I did? And you uh, you may be one of the only people in the world that could appreciate this. I channeled President Bartlett and said, I'm a father myself. I can tell you beyond question, your father is proud of you. Your father is happy with you. Your father did and does love you. And, and that's how I got out of it. And I didn't have to go any farther. Uh, she teared up and that was enough. And I think I'm I think I'm right when I say that, I, you know, I, I certainly don't know, but I didn't have to then say, hey, I'm just a schmuck who uh, learned a couple of magic tricks and uh, I have no real, I can't, there is no, I, there's no, um, you're not talking to the right guy. I didn't have to go that far. I have had to go that far. So you, have you been in the situation that Rob Zabrecki is in where somebody said, Will you come to my house next week and uh, I'll pay you 500 bucks to contact Uncle Jerry? No, nobody has ever offered me money to do that. But but there have been people who said, would you be willing to blah, 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 uh, to which I respond, you know, a lot of what you saw tonight can happen in this room because I, I make it happen in this room. Uh, the, the rest of it, you know, it's not something that I would travel with essentially. It's a harder thing for me. You know, th this is stressful enough. I wouldn't open that can of worms. And then they sort of get the fact that I, without me having to say, Hey, I, uh, I'm not really a, you know, which, which I will do if, if pushed, I don't want anybody believing you know, that in some way, shape or form, I have mystical powers that can contact the dead, but I don't want to take their experience away from them unless they force me to. They've got to really push me into a corner before I'm going to just open the curtains and say, why don't you come on backstage for a second? And you can see, I got two guys back here that are putting, you know, that, and look at this little contraption that I use. And here's a, and I've never really had to go that far, but, mm -hmm. but I've come close a couple of times in having to say, Hey, snap out of it. It's just a show. Uh, and I don't really want to do that. I want them to, you know, have the experience that they that they want to have and enjoy what they want to believe. And I, and I don't want to necessarily, this has all been a piece of theater. I don't think that's, I don't think I have to do that. I don't feel like that's my responsibility unless we get to a place where it's, it's sad or maudlin and, or they believe too deeply that I have powers then then I then I will cop to the fact that this is a show and it was designed to give them an experience and I'm happy they had that experience uh, but it's a show you know you're reminding me of 
when I was doing research for the ambitious card where I had to learn how to do that trick and learn about what a magician's life is like. I also had to do a lot of research on psychics. And I went to a psychic fair here in Minneapolis. It was an all-day thing on a weekend. And I was in a, a large ballroom with maybe 300 people. And there was a, a psychic on stage. And he was doing essentially cold readings of the audience. You know, anyone here who's uh, right. a relative who died on the toilet? Yeah. It was a heart thing, wasn't it? No, he was shot like John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that's going to probably be a heart thing if, if, if you die on the toilet. Anyway, a woman stood up, and I forget the specifics of what she said, but the gist of it was, um, my sister is about six miles away, and she's dying. She's in the hospital, and I want to know if uh, I was estranged from her, and I want to, my because of something my mother said, and my mother's past, would, can you contact my mother to see if I should go? make peace with my sister who's dying. And the psychic didn't exactly step out of his role, but he, he, I mean, there, there was like a chill in the room. It's like, lady, your sister's dying. What yeah. are you doing in a psychic fair six miles away? And he very gently said, I can't do that, but I can tell you this, the sense that I'm getting is you're better off at her side right now than here with us. So he didn't break the audience contract. He didn't, yeah predicting but he just gently said get out of here you goof yeah. what are you doing here she's dying yeah it uh it, you, you are i think when you do this kind of work when you choose to do this kind of work and i was absolutely from a kid drawn to this kind of work when i walked into eagle magic store in 1986 and larry said to me a book came in that you have been waiting for your entire life he was right when he showed me Spirit Theater. Uh, I've been waiting for that book my entire life. And there it was. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm happy to do this kind of work. I enjoy this kind of work. Uh, Halloween, as Eugene Berger always used to say, is my favorite religious holiday. I don't think that's true of me anymore, but it certainly was as a kid. Uh, and, and there is no reason to pull the rug, in my opinion, out from underneath the audience's feet, unless we get to a place where I feel they are uh, uh, in deep, deep water. And I have no choice but to say, like, come over here to the side of the pool for a minute, and I'm going to get you a daiquiri and explain to you that this is what it is. Yeah. Uh, By the way, this is a pool and there's a ladder right there. And that's right. Please climb up Yeah, and dry <laughs> off. Try the sauna. Seems <laughs> like that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating branch of, of magic. And you know, what's funny about it really is, you know, it's, it's as old as the Hills. It goes, I mean, Saul visited the witch of Endor. Didn't need to try to uh, contact the, the spirit of, uh samuel and ask him a question uh so it's it's old but when eugene started doing spirit theater uh and his show hauntings i don't know that there was anybody else doing it yeah a and since and when he started everything that he conceived everything that was used in the show they had to make it just it, it didn't exist anywhere. You couldn't go to a magic store and buy an electronic Ouija board. They didn't exist. You had to, you know, you had to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, now 
there are conventions, there are uh, manufacturers, there are incredibly wonderful props that you can purchase. And, and all of that, I think, uh, had its at least its seed planted by Eugene Berger. I think that's true. We will go into much more depth about this uh, later in the season with our friend Joe Diamond, who is also a student of Eugene. But we need to get uh, down to our real reason for being here, which is you reading the next chapter of the Miser's Dream. We're up to chapter two. I'll just remind everybody that in chapter one, uh, Eli met Quinton Moon, who is uh, a Tommy Wonder-esque magician, charming and brilliant and just fantastic in all ways. And at the end of that chapter, Eli looked out of his uh, bedroom window into the projection booth of the theater next door and saw that there was a body lying on the floor of the projection booth. Chapter 2 I considered for one brief moment not calling the police, not because I didn't want to do my civic duty, but because I probably called the police about dead bodies a few too many times in my life. People were beginning to talk. Common sense won out, of course, and I quickly placed a call to 911 and did my best to outline what I had seen. This resulted in the almost immediate arrival of a squad car, and several minutes later, two patrolmen and I were peering through my window and trying to determine what we were actually seeing on the floor of the projection booth at the theater next door. We agreed it looked like a body and that the body looked dead. The patrolmen quickly, in their terminology, escalated the event, and 15 minutes later, homicide detective Miles Wright stood next to me as we stared through the window. It's a hell of a thing, he finally said. Wright has the gravelly voice of a long-time smoker and the yellow teeth to prove it. Shouldn't we be, I don't know, doing something? I asked, trying to nudge him towards some form of action. Patrol guys are all over it, he said, turning from the window and looking around my apartment. You are far more inclined toward action than I am. He's dead. It's cold outside. It's warm in here. He pulled out his glasses and studied the spines of books on the bookshelf. Besides, the theater is locked up tight. We got a call into the manager and the patrol guys are working on opening the front door. He'll still be dead when we get in. He sat down heavily on my couch and took out a pack of gum, offering me a piece. I shook my head. What do you think of all this snow? He continued, as if we were just a couple of guys hanging out, shooting the breeze. Got to be some kind of record, don't you think? So you think he's dead? Wright glanced at me and then at the window. Yeah, he looks plenty dead. I returned to my vantage point and studied the form splayed out on the floor of the booth. I had to agree with Wright. He looked plenty dead. I turned back to the detective who was seated comfortably on my couch. Where's your bitter half? You mean better half? Uh, you've known him longer than I have. He nodded in agreement. Yeah, you were right the first time, he said as his phone began to buzz. He's on his way. He reached into his pocket and pulled out his phone, listening for a few seconds before hanging up. He turned to me as he pushed himself up from the coziness of the couch. We're in, he said. Okay, it looks like there's in and there's 
in. Wright and I were standing at the base of the stairs to the theater's projection booth. The patrol officers had forced the theater's front door open, and one of them was now struggling with the projection booth's impressive metal door. He turned and looked down at us. It's locked, he reported. There's no keyhole on this side. Looks like it's locked from the inside. Wright snapped his gum. Any other way in? The patrolman shook his head. There are some square holes on the front wall for the projectors, but they're barely a foot in diameter, and the window we saw the body through is barred, tiny, and two stories off the ground. Wright scowled and turned to see the other patrolman approaching. This cop looked new and a little nervous. Crime scene team is here, the young man reported diligently. They see there's no way to pull any footprints from out front. Too many people have come and gone. Wright nodded and gestured toward the two exit signs on either side of the theater's large screen. Take a gander out those two back doors, and if you see any footprints, get the team to tent it quick. Otherwise, snow will erase all evidence in about ten minutes at the rate it's coming down. The young cop nodded and headed down the aisle. Wright's partner arrived at the same time as the theater's manager, and the contrast could not have been more amusing. Homicide detective Fred Hutton is tall and wide and grim and humorless. He's a just-the-facts-ma'am kind of cop and doesn't suffer fools or anyone else, especially me, gladly. He's also married to my ex-wife, which adds a flavor all its own to our prickly, ever-evolving relationship. The theater's manager was just as tall as the detective, but she wore it better than he did possessing that willowy stance you see with supermodels. However, at this moment, she looked nothing like a supermodel, unless that supermodel had been dragged out of bed and forced back to work in the middle of the night to face a dead body, with no time allotted for dealing with makeup or bedhead hair. If I was remembering correctly, her name was Tracy. We'd had a couple amusing conversations since she took on the job last spring, particularly about the way in which she radically changed the lineup of movies at the theater and subsequently made it once again a cool destination. She also instituted First Thursdays, a sort of open mic for variety acts which had pulled my Uncle Harry and many of his magician cronies back onto the stage. The Parkway double plays were also her brainchild, and whenever I thought of a possible title combination, I'd offered up as a potential programming suggestion. Be careful to use her terminology and not Harry's preferred term. Detective Wright had just finished bringing them both up to speed on the situation when two of the crime scene techs finished their work on the hinges and were able to remove the massive metal door to the projection booth. The techs stepped into the booth and homicide detectives Fred Hutton and Miles Wright followed. Their body language told us we were to remain where we were, but by leaning forward, both Tracy and I were able to get a glimpse into the small square room. Tracy gasped and pulled back. That's Tyler, she said in a hoarse whisper. The projectionist? Yeah, he worked here when I started. He's been here forever. Tracy backed away, clearly not wanting to see anything else. Oddly enough, my instincts led me in the exact opposite direction, and I took another step closer to the open door frame. From this new, slightly improved vantage point, I could see Tyler's body, 
face down, sprawled on the floor. A fresh red stain on the rear of his T-shirt suggested a bullet to the back, while a small puddle of blood surrounding the body completed the tableau. Several feet away, also on the floor, lay a really tiny handgun, which the detectives were scrutinizing with great intensity. Since no one was holding me back, I took two more steps forward, which gave me a better view of the entire room. As the patrolman had said earlier, the front wall of the room had two square holes cut through the concrete for the projector's lights to shine through. Advances in technology must have negated the need for two projectors at some point, as there was currently only one in the booth, though markings on the floor indicated where another projector probably stood for years. A large metal stand with a round, flat plate sat behind the remaining projector, and the film was spooled off the plate across a roller system in the ceiling and then in and presumably out of the projector. Against the wall where the missing projector once stood was a wooden stand with a Blu-ray player, mixer, and cables that ran through the other hole in the wall. I leaned to my left, peering around the corner of the booth, where I could see the cables as they snaked out of the hole in the wall. They stretched up to a video projector in the ceiling. This refinement must have been the theater's fledgling move toward digital projection. I turned to peer back into the booth. In addition to the projector, there was also a large work table, a weightlifting bench with a set of loose weights neatly stacked next to it, and four more different colored weights near what I took to be two large film canisters. Both were open and appeared empty, at least from this angle. Handwritten labels on each of the two canisters read LAM. An open-air toilet was wedged into one corner, which probably explained the lock on the inside of the projection booth door. I guessed that projectionists needed to answer the call of nature like anyone else, but don't always have the luxury of heading downstairs to the restroom when the need arose. The base of the toilet looked cracked and moldy and may have accounted for the small puddles of water I noticed on the floor. My visual tour of the room was interrupted by an exclamation from Detective Wright. He was pointing to an envelope which lay open on the work table. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton moved across the room just finishing pulling on a pair of latex gloves. He gave the second glove a practiced snap and picked up the envelope, prying it gently open. Even from my distant vantage point, I could see the envelope was full to bursting with cash. After several minutes of my gawking, the cops had clearly had enough. Detective Wright instructed one of the patrolmen to escort Tracy and me back to the lobby where they would join us for brief questioning. We made our way back downstairs and stood around silently for several minutes. Tracy sat in one of the lobby's overstuffed chairs while I took a position leaning against the candy counter. What do they think it is? she asked, running a hand through her thick red bedraggled hair. I bet it's suicide. If I was handicapping this, I'd put even money on suicide. Did he seem like the suicidal type? She shrugged. He had secrets. Well, the police haven't said anything, I said, but it looks like he was shot in the back and the gun was on the floor across the room. I'm no expert, but I think that rules out suicide. 
But didn't they say the room was locked from the inside? Indeed it was, and therein lies the mystery, I said, looking over as the two detectives made their way into the lobby. We tented the area over the southwest exit door, the one to the left of the movie screen, Detective Wright was saying quietly. It appears someone stepped out the door and then turned around and came back into the theater. They left prints in the snow, but the footprints may have been compromised by the falling snow and also by the very act of turning around. They stepped outside and stepped back in, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton repeated. Do you think they saw someone and didn't want to be spotted? That'd be my first guess. We're going to do a door-to-door in the morning to see if any of the neighbors saw something. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton nodded and then surveyed the room, looking first at Tracy and then taking an even longer look at me. He spotted the body, he said to Wright. He put a spin on the word he that I didn't like and spoke as if I wasn't standing ten feet from him. Wright nodded. The window in his living room has a decent view right into the projection booth. Homicide detective Fred Hutton grunted and headed across the lobby toward me. Eli, he said by way of greeting. Good evening, homicide detective Fred Hutton, I said by way of response. Or actually, I suppose at this point I should say good morning. This produced another nonspecific grunt from him. Since our initial meeting when he introduced himself as homicide detective Fred Hutton, I have consistently referred to him by his full name and title, much to his consternation and my amusement. He didn't like it the first time I did it and likes it even less now. For me, it never gets old. Tell me what happened, he said, getting right to the point. I don't have much more to add beyond what your partner described, I said. I came home, glanced out my living room window, and saw what appeared to be a body lying on the floor of the projection booth. Do you make it a habit to peep into the projection booth? He had taken out his notepad and was writing small, spidery notes. Sometimes, I replied, trying to remove any tone of defensiveness from my voice, but I'm not sure I would use the word peep. I like to see if I can figure out what movie is playing. He raised an eyebrow at this. And how does that work? There's a small mirror on one wall, and if you get the angle just right, you can see light bouncing off something or other and sort of get a sense of part of the movie screen. My voice trailed off, and I met his eyes for a moment before looking away. He shook his head with a sigh and then returned to his note-taking. And then what did you do? took me a moment to realize we were off my window-peeping habits and back onto the body on the floor. I called 911, I said. And what was your relationship with the projectionist? This question took me by surprise. None, I said, perhaps a tad too quickly. I've never met him. You repeatedly and routinely stare into his workspace, and yet you've never met him? Not only have I never met him, I said again, working hard not to sound too defensive, but I've never really even seen him. I mean, completely. This produced a hard stare from homicide detective Fred Hutton, which caused me to stammer a bit as I continued my response. I mean, I've seen his arms, his legs, I've seen him moving around in there, but I don't think I've ever actually seen his face. We met each other's eyes again. And then he returned to his notebook, 
Interesting, he said, scribbling something quickly. I think that's all we'll need from you for now. We may want you to come down and make an official statement in the next day or two. Okay, I said, not sure what the protocol was in a situation like this. You want me to leave? Nothing would make me happier, he said, without humor, as he turned and headed across the room to Tracy. She had witnessed his treatment of me, and I could see she was bracing for a difficult conversation. I pushed against several of the glass lobby doors until I found one that was unlocked. I was about to step into the cold night when I heard one of the crime scene techs come into the room and report to Detective Wright how much money they had found in the envelope in the projection booth. When I heard the figure, it was all I could do to avoid doing a double take with an accompanying cartoon sound effect. I successfully squelched the impulse and continued on my way out the door. Yeah, a dead body and a bunch of cash. I think we're I think we're in the midst of a mystery here. I uh I would like one or the other, really. Uh, and I think I know which of the other or one I would prefer. Uh, but yeah, uh, we're in the middle of a mystery now, baby. Things yeah. are heating up and away we go. Away we go. We're going to be back uh, in a couple weeks with episode 403. We have such a delightful guest, a young lady named Rachel Wax, who oh. is so much fun uh, and who also has given us our first R-rated segment of the uh, podcast. It'll be its own separate little thing you can listen to, uh, but it's such a great story and it was just no way to clean it up uh, to give us our our normal G rating here. So, what are you Rachel, put in the show notes? So, yes, Rachel will be here for her full interview, and then in the show notes there'll be a, a link to a little bonus video of her telling that story. And speaking of bonus videos, if uh, for some reason you liked what Rob Zabrecki had to say today, that's also available just as a little bonus video on our YouTube channel. There's a link to it in the show notes if you want to send that off to somebody and say, hey, don't bother listening to the whole podcast, but this, uh, this thing that Rob Zabrecki said was kind of interesting. Yeah. So, and we'll have to have him back for real sometime because he's really a fascinating, fascinating guy. I would do it. You know, I would. Yes. And we will see you next time uh, with our great guest, Rachel Wax. And chapter three of The Miser's Dream, everybody. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, friends. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.